Well, good morning and uh, welcome here, friends. My name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. So feel free to uh, just wander. Feel free to head to the back. Actually, if you want one of these books, just stick your hand up. And uh, David, can you bring them around just to anybody who has their hand up there? Uh, that would be wonderful. And then you can, uh, there's a spot to take notes in there. We will be on page three uh, today as we start into our new series here as we go uh, into the summer. And um, the summer is a time at Jericho where we have been going through the books of the Old Testament. And since we've been doing this actually since 2011, we started in the summer of 2011 in the book of Genesis, and that took a long time. And the goal of the, the taking the summers to go through the books of the Old Testament is to give you a sense of the scope of the story that God is writing uh, and working through in this wonderful, wonderful section of the scriptures. And so um, just to give you like a loose, rough and dirty sense of the chronology of this, um, just so you can get a little bit of like a location of some of the people and the places that we have talked through. Uh, at the beginning when we started working through Genesis, then you've got the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, in that era. And then the ancient people of God are enslaved in Egypt. And then uh, they're there for hundreds of years. And then they're led out in a dramatic rescue event that God uh, initiates, which is known as the Exodus. And they're given laws and they're given land. And they are uh, invited to follow God in that period. And they wander in the wilderness. And then there's a period uh, where there's provided leadership by the judges and prophetic leaders like Elisha and Elijah. And then they want a king like other nations have. And so we move into the time period of the monarchy of ancient Israel. And this is recorded in places like Kings and Chronicles. And there's many prophetic leaders who are speaking during this time, like Elijah and Elisha. And uh, so they're, they're raised up to speak to the people. And hundreds of sermons and hundreds of pages later, there uh, we come to the end of the line uh, for the people of Judah and Israel. And they're displaced from their lands. And this is one of the more cataclysmic events in the Old Testament. And it's known uh, as, again, as the exile. And this happens in a few stages. First, the northern kingdom is carried off, and then the southern kingdom falls to invaders. And so last summer, we looked at some of the books that happened during that period of time. So the books of Daniel and the books of Esther occurred uh, while the people were not in their land. Daniel is living uh, in a foreign land in Babylon. And we find out... And we get these little snippets of hope, little promises that happened. And one of them happens in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is a prophet and he speaks to the people and he says, listen, you're going to be sent to these lands, but God will bring you back into this place and God will bring you back uh, to your home. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story this summer. This is actually kind of like the very final chapter of the Old Testament. 
and it includes contemporaneous work with uh, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. But this kind of introduction to the final section of uh, the First Testament is really by the books bearing the name of two men, Ezra, who was more of a religious leader, and Nehemiah, who was uh, more of a civic leader during this time period. And these two men accompany the people at different times out of captivity from Babylon and from Assyria. And because of all of the parallels that the writers want us to see and understand from the first exodus and from the people leaving Egypt, this is often referred to by scholars as the new exodus or the second exodus in the Old Testament. And so hence the title for our series this summer. Uh, and so today we're going to look at Ezra chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can open that up and we'll follow along. And just a little bit of background as we uh, get jump into this series together. The first thing to understand is that though these books are separated in our modern English Bibles, that was not uh, the case in the original writings. They were one book, Ezra, Nehemiah. And about in the third century, uh, they were divided. Uh, but it originally was a single book. And so it can get a little bit confusing at times, the timeline of this. So we'll come back to that a few times over the course of the summer. But the other thing that can be confusing for us is that we're used to, in modern Western literature, reading from left to right as a chronology. But the Old Testament is not placed in chronological order. And so if you look where Ezra and Nehemiah happen in your Bible, you think, well, they happen before the Psalms. That's interesting. But they actually are way, way, way at the back. It would be, if you were doing them chronologically, uh, back, it would be easier or more clear to put them back with Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi at the very, very end of the Old Testament. Because this is where, uh, in terms of the chronology, this sequence of events is happening. And then the other thing is that some of the books that we've been through, like Daniel and like Esther, are really quite uh, driven along by the plot. There's lots of drama in them. There's lots of evil characters that are, that are um, uh, putting all these plots together to ruin uh, and stand against God's people. And then you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and there's actually a lot of speeches and lists, and it's frankly not very dramatic whatsoever. Now, there is some drama in it, and we will come to that, but you have to kind of understand and sift through some of this. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on this morning, about what is the purpose of these kinds of speeches and lists. But one of the things that, these, that this book does is it helps us understand what it means to live faithfully in both high-challenge times and in regular seasons of our lives. And so as we go through the summer uh, here at Jericho, you'll hear from multiple people uh, it, that are part of our teaching team. You'll hear from uh, Kevin O'Coin, you'll hear from Rose, um, you'll hear from Pastor Wally. Uh, we've invited one of my friends, John, who's a pastor in Vancouver, to come and, and speak. And there's a lot here in these books that speak to our lives today. Uh, and, and it's kind of an interesting piece. This is one of the only sections, this summer and this fall, these are the only books in the Bible that in the 
five years of preaching. I've actually never preached through Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we're going to come into Hebrews in the fall. And uh, those will be the last two books that I've never touched. So this is, this is first time kind of plowing ground um, uh, for me, and we'll, we'll be on this journey uh, together. And so one of the things that we want to do is just what we did in the last series too, is that if something for you comes up during this series, and you think, boy, that did not make sense to me, Brad, or I, you said that, but it just, I, I need a little bit of extra um, information on that, then just use our text to qu- your question line. So that line is um, 844-650-1629. And you can just text at any time uh, during the morning, and uh, then we'll get that question, and then we'll know that that's something that we can uh, begin to respond to as we go through our series uh, together. And we'll put that up a few times for you. It's also in the booklet uh, on the questions for us section. But the book of Ezra, if we look at chapter 1, it actually begins with the closing words of Second Chronicles, which is probably why it's placed where it is, uh, because the writer wants us to help us understand a little bit of the chronology here, that the Jerusalem has fallen, and then at the very, very end of Second Chronicles chapter 36, the, the uh, writer turns the page and begins uh, with really the same words as up here in Ezra chapter 1. So I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 says this, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy that he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build a temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may God be with you. Uh, And so, uh, whenever the Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them gold, silver and gold, supplies for the journey, livestock, as well as voluntary offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So again, if you're familiar with the first exodus, that's the same thing that happened, that the Egyptians gave the departing people gifts to take with them. And so the writer wants us to see some of these parallels, that this book opens on this sense of hope, this sense of, oh, they're going back to this place where they used to live. There's been a life-altering, nation-altering event. They've come out the other side of it, and, and now life is somewhat returning to normal for them. And this pagan king, this foreign king, King Cyrus of Persia, is one of the ones that God uses to put this into place and in motion. And we have uh, little records of this from uh, the, the ancient Near East and from Persia. We have something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which gives a bunch of decrees that Cyrus gave. And we come to understand from reading that that Cyrus was given out this kind of stuff left, right, and center. This wasn't just to the Jews. Cyrus had a little bit of a different um, political philosophy than some of the other rulers did. Uh, but he, he was very much a pragmatist in this. And he thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let all these little nations that have been uh, moved out of their geographies, I'm going to let them go back to their homes and we'll let them worship their gods as kind of an ancient insurance 
policy. We'll just like let them have just enough religious liberty that they feel comfortable and are not going to rebel and that they'll pay their taxes on time. And so after 70 years of displacement and hopelessness and disorientation, this decree comes to the people who are living in these displaced cities in Babylon and in Assyria. You can go home again. Just like the first exodus where the people were led out of these places of captivity. And you're going to go home, and your job is to go home and to rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And it's an incredible series of events that happens. Uh, And the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah wants us to understand this link between the past, the present, and the future. And so there's actually a couple of sort of timelines that will cycle through uh, in this book. Not everybody comes back all at once in the first proclamation. And Ezra notes that the words uh, that Cyrus is referencing came out of the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. And we can actually read these words in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. In Jeremiah 20.10, this is what the Lord says, quote, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all of the good things that I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So, as a side note, this is probably one of the most taken out of context verses in the entirety of the scriptures. This gets slapped on graduation cards. It gets put on retirement mugs all of the time. This sort of blanket promise of hopeful futures for you, which we just love in the North American culture. But this is actually a a time-stamped prophetic word to the exiles, where Jeremiah says to them, this is for you that I'm gonna, I, I have plans for you. I'm going to give you a hope. I am going to give you a future. This is not a plan for disaster that I've sent you to all of these places in the world. But after time elapses, you know how it goes. You forget key things that happened I mean, I can hardly remember what happened yesterday or if I brushed my teeth before I left the house. And then you've got COVID, which interferes with time and bends it in all kinds of strange and unusual ways. Was that 17 weeks ago? Was that 70 months ago? I don't quite remember anymore. And so you get a real strong sense of of them needing to be reminded of these promises just because of the way that human nature is. Because if I'm the people and I'm sitting in Babylon, I'm thinking to myself, well, I might as well just put down some roots here and make a good life for myself. I mean, who knows how long I'm going to be here. I mean, look at all of these powerful rulers that are in place, and they've displaced all of these people, not just our people. Like, no one's going home anytime soon. What's this business about, oh, yeah, yeah, all the good things God's promised, you know, we'll go home after 70 years or so. I don't know if that's true. I would be thinking, I'd just sort of get anchored and, and settle down for a little bit and make a life for myself. I would get stuck in permanent Babylon standard time. And... I would just have a way of becoming forgetful of what God had said and promised. 
But this is one of the most powerful things that comes up again and again and again in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly here in chapter 1. And that is that the author wants us to know that God is faithful and that God will keep the promises that God makes. If God says God's going to do something, then God is going to do it. God is a God who keeps God's promises. God is faithful. In the New Testament, we come to understand that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus because this is who God is. This is an integral part of God's character and God's work. Now, let's also be clear about this, that this means that it has to be a promise that God has made, just not some kind of wishful thinking that you or I are doing or that we've conjured up in our minds and think, yeah, yeah, that's, I'm sure that was something that God promised to me, wasn't it? Because I really want it to happen. I can remember, and I've told this story um, before, when Meg and I were relatively newly married and we were struggling with infertility. And all of our friends seemed like we're having kids and we would try and try and nothing was happening for us. And it just became so profoundly discouraging year after year. And you get into this place, and I can just remember thinking, well, maybe God's forgotten about us. Maybe this isn't what we're about. Maybe God's abandoned us in some way in this part of our lives. And God's pouring out all those blessings on those other people, but maybe that's not for us. And your heart in those places starts to get a little bit hard and a little bit jaded and a little bit calloused. And there's moments where it moves beyond that into places of bitterness and places of deep disappointment with God. And I can remember a low moment. It was a Christmas. We were living in a friend's basement temporarily at the time, and we thought it would just be a short period of time because we had bought a townhouse from friends that were building, and their building was delayed and delayed and delayed, so it just seemed like it was never going to happen. And, and one day I was grouching to God about this. That's called prayer. And, and God drew my attention to a psalm, to Psalm 139, verse 9. And it was one of those moments where you're just reading through the psalm and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, and I got to the verse in Psalm 139, verse 9, where in the NIV it says, God settles the childless woman in her home as the happy mother of children. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And, and it was like that verse just leapt off the page for me at that moment. And I, and I wrote it down, and I shared it with Meg, and I said, I, I think that this is God's promise to us in some way, that, that yeah, we're, we're going to get settled into our new home eventually, and that God is going to bless us with children. So the challenge factor with that, though, was that that actually didn't instantly change anything in our circumstances. We were still stuck in the basement with Christmas lights on a treadmill because we had packed away our Christmas tree and thought we were going to be in a new place by then. And we still didn't have kids in any way. And so it was something that I sensed that God had in our future but we were living in this time between times. And 
while the promise was good, it was still kind of frustrating because we didn't know when it was going to come to fruition in some way. And I kind of laugh at uh, the way that Peter in the New Testament, one of Jesus' close associates, puts this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, and it's a fairly weighty phrase, you must not forget this one thing. So you think that it's pretty important something Peter wants to tell us. And he says, dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. Oh, really? A thousand years? The Lord isn't being slow, and it feels like it's a thousand years away from now? Thanks for nothing, Peter. But this actually did prove true in our circumstance. It was several years and lots of Kleenex and heartache later, but God did fulfill that promise to us. We did settle into that home, and shortly after, we had our first child. And sometimes that period, actually, as I look back on it and lived through it, it felt like a thousand years. And so during those dark and sleepless nights, what I would do is I'd go back to Psalm 139, and I would say, God, you gave us a promise. You're going to settle us. We feel confident that this is a promise that you have given to us. And I would pray with great boldness to say, God, I'm going to hold you to this <laughs> because that's my sense of what you had revealed to us. And I would pray and say, God, are you still going to come through on this? And I would, in those moments, sense that just a little bit of assurance. Yeah, that's a promise that I gave you, God. Brad, I will be faithful to that. And so the question that I have for you in this space is, what promises are you still waiting on God for? Maybe you're living in a space like that right now. Maybe you feel like, oh yeah, God's given me some kind of promise, something that's a little bit of an anchor point. And you're, you're pretty confident that that's something that God gave to you. Maybe you have a sense that God has a job change for you, and yet you've applied and applied and applied and nothing happens. Or maybe you sense that you're waiting to get into a program of some kind or housing at university and you're like, I'm getting no answers on this. Or maybe God's given you a sense of what to expect and yet right now it just seems like nothing is moving in that direction. So what promise or promises are you still waiting on God to fulfill? And then the question is, how are you doing and what are you doing while you wait. Because the people in Ezra's day were sure that the promise of returning to the land was just categorically impossible. I mean, who's going to let a whole bunch of people go back to their homeland and rebuild a city that was just known for, like, uh, resisting at the people who had displaced them again and again and again. It just would have been a categorical and political impossibility. But God stirred the hearts of a pagan king as part of God's promise to be faithful to God's promises. And let's look at this for a moment because this is a theme that's going to come up again and again and again in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. This little phrase, God stirred 
the heart or stirred the hearts. Let's keep reading in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. Then God stirred the hearts, so not only stirred the heart of Cyrus, but God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And their neighbors assisted them by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all of the voluntary offerings. So they were stirred in their hearts. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that the king Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. And Cyrus directed Mithridath, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Sheshbazar, the leader of the exiles, returning to Judah. And so we see time and time and time again in Ezra and Nehemiah, God is busy. God is active. God is stirring up the hearts of people all over the place, not just the hearts of kings, but the hearts of people to want to go back to Jerusalem. God's stirring up the hearts of their neighbors to assist and be generous and support them. God's stirring up hearts is a reoccurring theme in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And let's look at how Nehemiah experiences this in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is uh, actually working for another king at this time, King Artaxerxes, and he's, he's feeling stirred that those who had returned with Ezra are not getting on very well with the project of rebuilding the temple. And so God puts it in his heart and stirs Nehemiah's heart to go and be a part of that, but he has to actually ask for permission to get a leave of absence from his job. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, look at the way he prays. He says, O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Nehemiah's got an important role at that point. He's a cupbearer for the king. And God's put it in his heart to go back to Jerusalem and help with this. But look at how he phrases his prayer. He says, okay, God, you've, you've, you've heard the prayers of people. You've heard my prayer. Now I'm going to pray that you would actually stir up the heart of this other king and grant me success by making the king favorable. Put it in the king's heart to be kind and favorable to me. And over and over and over again, this comes up in Ezra and Nehemiah, that God is stirring up people's hearts. And I was personally challenged by this notion of God stirring hearts because sometimes we find ourselves falling into uh, bad habits of praying as if God actually isn't really listening. We ask for things that are kind of tame or timid or that we're pretty sure we could do for ourselves. Or, on the other hand, we treat God as a personal blessing vending machine. Just put in the right prayers and surely God will bless and make favorable whatever my plans already are. But think about this phrase of God stirring up hearts. The way that Nehemiah prays and the way that Ezra pray in Scripture indicates that 
not only is God stirring up hearts, but actually God's heart can be stirred as well. God is moved responsively to compassionate action by the prayerful implication and implications of God's people. And so the implication of this is that God is not on autopilot somewhere out there unmoved by human requests. God is also not a vending machine. But Nehemiah asked specifically for God to put a thought, to put an action into the heart of the king. And in fact, God does. Sometimes I think we pray as if God has decided everything already. And we're just like, well, I guess God's going to do what God's going to do. So like, oh, how would I phrase that? Lord, let your will be done. And sometimes, while that's a powerful phrase, if we pray it with respect and intent, if we pray it in a resignation kind of way, sometimes we back off from being bold and actually engaging with God and asking God, are you moved by this plight of what's going on? Now, let's be clear. God is not to be ordered around by you. So it's not like, well, if I can just get the right amount of people praying for this prayer request, or if I can get just the really spiritual people praying for it, somehow then God's going to be more moved. Or maybe I should add fasting into this to really stir up God's heart in, in some way. God will not be ordered about, but God is also not unmoved by your challenges and needs and circumstances. What Ezra is trying to communicate to us here is that God cares. God is attentive. God is paying attention to what's going on in your life and in the world. And when you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, they live under this conviction that God is actively listening as they pray and that God is actively moved to action by their supplication and invitation. And it feels a little brass and bossy sometimes, but there's something to that kind of prayer. And I found myself personally challenged by this. I found myself going back through my prayers over the last week and kind of assessing my conversations with God and saying, were there times I was being too demanding or was there times I was being too timid and just sort of almost autopiloting prayers? Lord bless so-and-so, be with so-and-so, etc., etc. A kind of weak, watered-down thinness where, where I'm not actually expecting God to do anything or respond in any meaningful way to that request. And this is part of the reason why we have people who are trained and who we make available every single weekend here at Jericho to pray and stand with you. Because sometimes you just pray for something and you just feel like, I don't know if God's listening to me at all. And you need partners in that to come alongside of you and around you and to stand with you in faith and to actually say, you know what, I want to shoulder that burden with you. You may not have the faith to believe that God is paying attention to that, but let me join you in that prayer. And I want to respond and unpack how you're feeling and thinking. And we would love to stand with you in that place of prayer and confidence. Not bossing God around or telling what God what to do, but just genuinely standing and stepping into that place in faith where we believe that God is attending and caring about you and your circumstances. And so when we pray here at Jericho, we pray with that kind of mix of boldness and humility. As we approach the throne of grace, the scriptures say, 
to find help in our times of need. That's the kind of prayers we're going to see again and again and again in Ezra and Nehemiah. So, the first thing we see is that God keeps God's promises. God is faithful. The second thing we see is that God moves hearts and God's heart is moved. And then very abruptly, we come into a very weird list of stuff in Ezra chapter 1. So it, it makes sense to ask, well, what is with the list? Like of all of the things that God could have talked about and spent real estate on in the scriptures, 5,400 things at the end of chapter 1 are listed, and then almost 50,000 people. It just goes on and on and on, list after list after these people came. How many people came from this family? How many people came from this family? And you might think to yourself as a modern reader, who in the world cares about how many bowls they drag back with them from Babylon? Like... Who cares if 42 people came from this family or 2,812 people came from that family or this family? Like, what in the world is God trying to communicate in this type of a place? It's a good and legitimate question. And we often, as modern readers, get really bored with lists and just skip over them. But the returning exiles, there's something quite powerful here for them. Because, remember, they've been displaced from worship. The whole of their lives was oriented around worshiping God rightly in the temple. And then the temple is destroyed and disappears. And they have to actually reinvent, well, how are we going to connect with God from the ground up during exile? And so the return of these items of worship that were used in the temple would have represented something powerful and something personal to them. It would have been this kind of tangible expression of God keeping God's promises to them and demonstrating that God still wanted them to engage in worship. Scholar Dean Ulrich notes in his commentary on Ezra 1 that, quote, the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar might have captured the vessels. Belteshazzar might have profaned them by treating them with a lack of reverence. That comes up in the book of Daniel. He just uses them at this feast, fills them all with wine, gives them to his guests. But the return of those things signals that God is still alive and on the move. God is advocating for God's saving purposes. God has not lost to the gods of Assyria, Babylon, or Persia. These empires might have been instruments of discipline that prepared the people in the world for a new chapter in the story of redemption, but they do not have the final word, end quote. And so that's what Ezra and the writers of this book are trying to communicate. And the other interesting thing is that this book is probably written about 100 years after that first decree that Cyrus gives. And things did not go, we're going to see smoothly up and to the right with the group of, that came back and wanted to rebuild the temple and the walls. It was, not a sl it was not a quick building project that they engaged with. And so those who were reading this, the first readers, were subject to frustrations and delay. And it could easily be understood for them how they would have experienced just being frustrated again and like God wasn't up to anything. But then when they read this list of, you know what though? I'm tempted to think that, but 
God has been faithful because I'm reminded in a tangible way of that radical sense of continuity of worship. God actually gave us these things to bring back with us. These temple vessels convey the sense of God's faithfulness with a vision of inspiring hope and an invitation to worship God in the present. And the wait looked like it was going to be long. And when the wait looks like it's going to be long, one of the things that's helpful, and those of you who are parents will know this, is if your children are young, if you give them something tangible to do while they wait, it helps. There was an entire industry of fidget spinners that was generated by this very thought. But something tangible, like that we can hold, uh, as opposed to just an idea, is something quite powerful. And so God gives the people that in God's generosity and gives them that these vessels to actually, in the context of their worship, go back to time and time again. And actually, we need that kind of encouragement and tangible linkage between past, present, and future as well not just the people of Ezra's day. It become very easy for us to become discouraged, to become and think, oh, well, maybe God was working in the past, maybe God will work in the future, but I don't know, is God working right now? I'm not sure. God is moving. It can be tempting for us to think, God's moving so slowly on God's promises of justice or God's return to set all things right. And so while we wait a tangible reminder can be helpful. And I wonder if that's actually why Jesus gives his followers something tangible while we wait. The inaugurated of the first supper at Jesus' coming, Jesus says, hey, the fulfillment of all things in the kingdom is going to be a long way off. When I appear in glory, all of the promises of God will be completed and you'll join me for all of eternity. But until then, wait. And until then, I'm going to leave you with something tangible, something that reminds you of the good gifts that I have given to you and the promises and the invitation to worship. And Ron and the team are coming. And we're gonna, they're going to lead us in three songs of response in worship today. And the focus of these three songs is going to be to anchor into this place of waiting. And to anchor into this place of waiting with a sense of expectancy and hope, even when things seem a long way off. And you may, as I said earlier, find yourself personally in that space where you're just thinking, I don't know if God is actually moving. I don't know if God's maybe forgotten me in some way. And if you're in that space, we want to pray with you and for you today. And so James uh, will be at the back, and Sylvia will be at the back, and I'll be at the back as well. We'll have name tags on, and we would love to stand with you and pray for you today. And if you're joining us online, uh, you can email us at prayer at jerichoridge.com, and we would love to engage with you in that space. In his book uh, that is entitled Now and Not Yet, uh, scholar Ulrich reminds us that, quote, the biblical antidote to discouragement, which happens when we get lost 
in the tension between the already and the not yet is to look back to what Jesus has already done and to look forward to what God will yet do. The former, what God has done, is a foretaste of the latter, end quote. So, friends, I invite you to take your communion supplies uh, with me. And just at the top, pull off the, uh, and expose the wafer there. If you need a gluten-free option, those are available uh, at the back where the books were there. And take out the wafer. And this represents a kind of down payment in the language of the Scriptures. A foretaste of the goodness and of the provision that God has promised but that yet is not fully realized in our world and in our lives. But we take it and we eat it as a tangible reminder of faith, as an act of defiance against darkness and despair, and an act of celebration while we wait. So friends, take this. This represents Christ's body broken for you so that you can experience wholeness while you wait. And the cup, the fruit of the vine, in the Exodus typology, the temple vessels remind the post-exilic Jews of what God has done and what God says God will yet do. And the New Testament picks up on the same language of Exodus and says that Jesus is our Passover. And so until the time that we eat and drink again with Jesus in the meal of the Passover and the fellowship of the Lamb. We recall what Jesus inaugurated and what God promised, and we live in patient hope. Take and drink. This is a guarantee of God's capacity to always fulfill God's promises. Jesus, we gratefully receive and respond to all that you are and to all that you have done. The great love that you showed us by laying down your life, even to death, death on a cross for us to experience freedom and wholeness. And so, Lord, we want to receive all of the things that you have for us in this space today. Gift us with faith. Gift us with appropriate boldness to approach you in confidence. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray and we sing.